thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you believe that ag innovation is a solution to many of our world's most important problems, you found the right show. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure every week to introduce you to the founders, the farmers, the innovators and investors shaping the future of the agriculture industry. One can make a very strong argument that one of the biggest limitations to agricultural technology becoming more widespread is rural connectivity. This has been a hot topic for some time because internet connected devices on the farm don't do us much good without internet on the farm. We dive into that topic today, but instead of droning on about the problem itself, I get to introduce you to an actual solution. We have on the show Dr. Sarah Spangolo, who is a CEO and co-founder of Swarm Technologies. Swarm's business sounds futuristic, but it's actually already happening. They launch constellations of small sandwich-sized, low-cost two-way satellites into lower orbit space to provide connectivity at a low cost for IoT devices. IoT, of course, is the internet of things or internet connected devices. So in agriculture, think about a lot of, you know, different types of sensors and meters and those types of things. Sarah has such an impressive background. Uh, Before starting Swarm, she worked on small satellites and autonomous aircraft at the University of Michigan and was a lead systems engineer at both NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab and Google X. Her expertise is in modeling and optimizing satellite constellations to maximize impact and business opportunities. Sarah holds a PhD in aerospace engineering from the University of Michigan and in 2017 was a top 32 Canadian astronaut candidate. Be sure to listen to the conversation with Sarah all the way through for some fascinating insights into how all of this works and how this could enable many more advancements in agricultural technology in the future. Also, you'll get treated with another startup spotlight at the end with the type of company that could benefit from Swarm, Bloomfield Robotics. CEO Mark DeSantis shares the work they're doing, so stick around for that as well. But first, we dive into our featured conversation here with Dr. Sarah Spanglow. I'll invite you into the conversation here where Sarah's explaining why she started Swarm. We started Swarm about three and a half years ago. And the goal at that time was really to solve for global affordable connectivity. And we have made tremendous strides towards that goal over the last three and a half years. We've launched uh, nine of the world's smallest communication satellites that literally fit in your hand. And we've done a variety of trials and pilots, providing low-cost connectivity solutions on a global scale to a variety of different verticals, including ag tech and logistics and energy and other IoT applications. And this is a very exciting year for us because we are going live in the commercial sense. So we have all our regulatory approvals. We'll be launching about 150 more over the next year, and that'll provide us with a yeah, a network of 150 satellites for global continuous coverage, covering every point on Earth at all times, and essentially providing a lower cost version of existing networks that people might know of, like Iridium and Orbcom, that do provide satellite connectivity, but they're so expensive that most people don't use them or even know about them. And with our network, will be about 10 times lower cost, meaning it starts to become accessible for farming and agriculture and logistics and keeping people safe globally. What types of customers are currently using the really expensive service? Because I don't think it's agriculture generally, but who's using this, the status quo? Yeah. So there's a little bit of agriculture. If you think of like Caterpillar and really like high value goods, a lot of like Maersk ships, 
use the higher cost satellite connections because that's very critical to their operations. Some trucking and logistics use it if they're carrying high value goods. Yeah, it tends to be more kind of in the logistics and then a little bit in the maritime space and then a lot in the U.S. government space which makes sense, right? Having those connectivity solutions regardless of where you are. Another is aviation. You know, most people have only heard or seen of an Iridium phone when they were actually on a small or larger aircraft where they saw that as a, you know, critical kind of safety equipment piece. And then some other government applications, you know, where there's remote workers, uh, where it's pretty important that people be able to kind of phone home. And you all being able to be one-tenth of the cost of that, is that just in hardware or where does this cost savings come from where you can offer this service so much cheaper? Yeah, so it's actually a combination of things. So if you look at the cost of launching a satellite, it actually scales directly with the mass and volume of the satellite. So the smaller you can make the thing that you want to launch, the lower cost it is to launch it. And it's pretty considerable. It's basically linear with mass or volume. So the fact that our satellites are 400 grams and the Iridium satellites were 1,000 kilograms, the Orbcom satellites were about 1,000 kilograms, you can see, wow, that's more than 1,000x difference in mass and volume as well. So that's the huge driver. Our satellites, because they're so small and simple, are also considerably lower cost to build relative to the you know several hundred million dollar satellites I worked on at JPL. We don't talk too much about the cost of the actual satellites, but if you just kind of were to make a list, you would see uh, it's pretty simple. It's electronics, it's GPS, it's radios, it's antennas. It's all pretty low cost equipment. And then we actually vertically integrate, build all of our stuff in-house. So that also helps reduce the cost. We're not paying a third party to build our satellites or do any of our manufacturing. So in that sense, we're also able to keep costs of the manufacturing itself very low. And when did it show up on your radar that agriculture and ag tech might be a market for you? I think since the very beginning, we recognized that ag tech would be a really great place to apply swarm. And the rationale behind that was knowing that there's tons of agricultural regions that don't have good cellular connection. And I actually knew that I'd experienced growing up in Manitoba, like driving out to my dad's family farm and then sometimes driving back in the winter and not having cell connectivity. And, you know, you just were completely outside of cell until you hit the city, basically. And there were just acres and acres and miles and miles and miles of farm. So to me, that was pretty intuitive that there is a lot of, you know, high valued equipment. There are sensors that are required. There are lots of people that should be in touch for kind of safety reasons. And then there's also like grain silos and there's tons of trucks driving around, moving goods all around. So there just seems to be oodles of use cases. And then I also know that agriculture has very slim margins. So there was stories of, you know, the year that there wasn't rain or there was too much rain and we didn't make any money and it was so devastating and the dirty thirties and, you know, all these stories that my grandparents had. And you hear about these, you recognize that, yeah, margins are very slim. So it's a use case where they're not paying for Iridium. <laughs> That's way too expensive for them. However, they're still in need for connectivity. And then I think also hearing about Central Valley and all of the droughts that have happened over the past several years. I actually fly small planes, so I'll fly over parts of California where it's just all agriculture. There's zero cell. You can imagine that there's plenty of use cases 
in terms of just if you could sense, you know, what's going on with the moisture levels and the water levels, you could do a lot better job of some of the high value vineyards or strawberries or almonds, like all of these different types of applications, which, you know, could benefit from having much better sensing and reactions to that sensing. And then in talking to early customers, many of them have been in the ag tech space, whether it's arable, which is, you know, an ag tech company that does moisture sensing here in California, sweet sense that does water pump and borehole monitoring in Africa, but also looking to expand to California. Also a lot of like beehives. So pollinating in New Zealand and Australia and California So many of our early customers that have immediately jumped on board to Swarm have been in the ag tech space. That's also been very validating. And as I understand it, you target these companies rather than like offering a farmer an internet package, you know, that they might be able to use via satellite. Talk to us kind of about that strategy or the technical differences between the two. Yeah. So our business model is that we sell hardware Um, and we have a very simple small modem which is somewhat like a cellular modem but it's a satellite modem that gets embedded within a sensor like arable's moisture sensor for example we also have a standalone device that has its own battery and antenna and processor that can be connected wirelessly or wired to sensors so we sell those two devices kind of like selling a cell phone or a cell phone chip that then gets embedded into a third-party device. And then we sell our services much like um, a cell phone service. So it's you know X dollars per month for a certain data volume, much like you know your Google Fi or your AT&T or Verizon type subscription. Um, and that's it. We don't have setup fees. We don't have annual fees. We don't have teardown fees. The farmer is probably more the end user. So it's more likely that we would sell to some sort of systems integrator that would create some sort of like moisture sensing package that would include obviously the moisture sensor, the swarm system, and then some sort of platform that the farmer can use to determine whether or not they should you know, bring in their yield or water or not water. And they would resell that to the farmer. We're also talking to many enterprises. So like uh, the Syngentas of the world, we have a partnership with Ford, we're talking to Maersk. So there's other companies where because they're a big enterprise, they most likely would be the end user as well. They would buy swarm services and embed them and use them within their fleets of ships or trucks or tractors or vehicles. The sensor companies is a good example, I think. So like a arable or someone who has some sort of sensor that needs to be connected, you know, internet connected device. How are they making that work currently without swarm and kind of what will be the difference when swarm is around? Yeah, so a lot of the sensing companies today in the ag tech space rely on cellular coverage, so they can only deploy where there's cell. And often that's very frustrating because they'll think they have cell in like Napa, and then they'll deploy a bunch of sensors and they don't actually. So it's not super useful. They may also rely on other terrestrial systems like GSM or LoRaWAN or Sigvox or Zigbee in certain locations. You know, there's all these different terrestrial wireless protocols. The challenges with all of them, of course, is they have limited reach. So, you know, it's only out to maybe tens or hundreds of kilometers in certain cases and then just nothing. So very limited. They can't rely on a single global solution. Some egg tech companies may use Orbcom or Iridium, but again, that's pretty rare just because of the margins and the cost structure of those prohibitively expensive solutions. 
how that will change with Swarm is that those that are using cellular can now extend their coverage to be truly global. And it will be at a price point that is reasonable for them. So in the ag tech space, it's a lot of people going from using cell in cell to now using Swarm outside of cell. And that allows them to have truly global reach, which is very impactful for a lot of their business cases. So the satellites can communicate with the devices anywhere on Earth once you have 150 up there, it sounds like. What's the modem doing? Yeah, so the modem is basically taking the data off of the sensor. So if in Arable's case, you know, that's probably a packet that includes it was this device, it was this day, it was this time, here was the moisture reading, here's maybe some other information from the sensor or from the device, puts that in a packet. A packet is sent over likely a wired system, but it could also be wireless to our modem. And then our modem has the intelligence of figuring out when it should turn on to transmit that data via an antenna to our satellites. So it's basically just the like walkie-talkie system or the transmitter that relays messages to the satellites. It also is pretty smart. It does like an acknowledgement. So it knows whether or not the message successfully got through to the satellite. And then once it's successfully been transmitted, it can delete that message. And everything is also two-way. So if a farmer wants to send a command back to its moisture sensor to turn off or an irrigation system to turn on, for example, is a common one. Messages can be routed via the internet, via our backend, uh, just built on AWS, like many backends, to our ground station network, to our satellites, down to our tiles in the field, and then to devices. So it can be relaying messages back as well. And that's actually pretty unique. Not all satellite companies do that. Interesting. And I imagine the regulatory process of getting approval to launch something into lower orbit, uh, as I understand you will be, is pretty extensive. So talk to us about that process. Yeah, definitely. So obtaining regulatory approval to communicate from ground to space is quite complicated. And it is truly kind of a global or international effort. The way that we approached it is we started with the U.S. and so working with the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and we applied for a portion of the available bands, which is allocated for satellite. So if you've ever looked at one of these frequency charts showing you know, where all of the radio waves are allocated from cellular connectivity to garage door openers to satellite spectrum, it's really a very complicated table. And only a small sliver of available frequencies have been allocated for satellite usage on a global scale. So we identified a portion of that spectrum. It's actually adjacent to where Orbcom is operating today. It's called the Little Leo Bands. It's in VHF, so that's like 137 and 148 megahertz. And we saw an interesting opportunity because in the 80s and 90s, there had been an allocation of this spectrum to five different satellite companies. And they were to share the spectrum, essentially. And only Orbcom launched. So Orbcom kind of absorbed more over time because nobody else was using it. However, the rules were written that if there was a new incumbent, a new player that entered the space, that they would have to share. And that's a very unique thing in uh, the space world. And you have to read you know, hundreds of pages of FCC docs to even know what's going on. So it's extremely complicated. But once you recognize an opportunity for this, it's kind of a special slot. So that's why we decided to apply in that slot. It also was compatible with the types of 
antenna sizes and power levels that we wanted to use on our satellites, which is also really important. Higher frequencies would be like, you know, the Starlink frequencies wouldn't work on our small satellites. So we applied for something that's called a Part 25, which is just the name of the license. And we put in this big application. It costs half a million dollars to even put in the application for them to consider it. It's quite an expense and probably more than that in legal fees of the lawyers that are helping you prepare and all of that. And we submitted that in late 2018 and we received it in October 2019. So relatively quickly. And we were really happy that we got that. And that just provides us with the approval to launch and operate in the U.S. Now, if we want to expand internationally, we also need to obtain market access in different countries. And we've been doing that over the past about year. And we actually now have approval in about 10 countries, including international waters where we can operate. So that allows us to expand our business internationally, which is super important because we are a global communications network. So we cover every point on Earth. We want to generate business every point on Earth. And right now, the only way to access connectivity on every point on Earth are these more expensive satellite offerings. Right? Correct. Yep. It's a major thing that I don't think most people realize. Like we tend to assume that we have cell and Wi-Fi everywhere. But if you look at the entire globe, including the oceans, cell only covers about 10% of that area. So there's 90% of our world has no connectivity except for these very prohibitively expensive solutions. And that's really what Swarm is trying to solve for, that 90% at an affordable point. Yeah, 10%. Is that number higher in America? Mm -hmm. Is a lot of that 90%, you know, like Antarctica or <laughs> you know, somewhere like that? Or yeah. What would the number be in like Well, the it's US? super interesting because you'll look at a cell phone map, like you know, Verizon or AT&T, and they'll make it look like it's pretty high, like, you know, 95 or 98 percent. But when we talk to, you know, farmers or people that do trucking and logistics or even maritime people, they often point out that, hey, it says that I have cell in Napa. But realistically, due to the rolling hills or, you know, other interference that I'm experiencing or just the cell phones infrastructure really isn't that good, it's a lot lower. So, you know, I, I think that 10% is probably even optimistic, <laughs> like it's probably not even 10% all of the time, but certainly regions like Pan America and Africa and many like small islands definitely struggle with connectivity. It's funny you say Antarctica because I actually went there <laughs> to install a ground station with my co-founder Ben and they have no cell. So it's only Ethernet, which I think they do to kind of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, limit the bandwidth and you have to like plug in your laptop and the whole base has like the connectivity of a cell phone here which is totally crazy so yeah regions like that have just nothing and like you know northern canada like where i'm from and more northern nothing uh greenland you know all of those regions have basically no connectivity a lot of my questions maybe sound dumb on the surface, but they give you a lot of flexibility to go deeper into this. Why are we only at 10% connectivity right now with terrestrial methods? Why haven't we built the infrastructure? We already know how to, obviously, on 10% of our ground. Why yeah. hasn't it gone higher than 10%? Yeah, I don't think any of your questions are dumb. I think it's good to ask these really <laughs> fundamental questions because they actually like are pretty illuminating. Fundamental is a better word than dumb. Yes, yeah. fundamental. First principles, <laughs> we sometimes yes. say. Yeah. So yeah, the reason is really the business case doesn't make sense. So 
cell towers are not cheap to install, and they also require power and access to typically some sort of like underground fiber line where it could be backhauled to some sort of web server. So yeah, it just doesn't make economical sense to continue to populate the rest of the 90% of the globe with cell phone towers because there's not enough business there. So you can imagine you'd have to like DC chain like hundreds of cell phone towers to get out to a remote place in Africa and people there maybe can't afford the amount of connectivity, like the bandwidth solutions that would warrant having DC chain that many cell phone towers together. Or alternatively, laying fiber, which is often done. You know, we have these incredible undersea fiber cables through our entire world, but routing one of those to Antarctica or to some remote island just doesn't make economical sense. So they just haven't been extended to those locations. I mean, I think you could almost create a really cool study where you could say, what is the cost of extending a cell phone network, like an additional kilometer outside of you know, a city or a region that already has it? And the incremental cost is actually very significant because there isn't necessarily power or the connectivity lines to backhaul through. So it's just economics. And that's one reason why I think Swarm is very cool because we launched these relatively low cost things. They cover the entire globe and they're constantly moving. So every point on earth is always covered and it's lower bandwidth than cell for sure. But you can at least bring back, you know, a heartbeat. And I like to joke like 50 bytes will save your life. Lat long altitude, you know, your position of where you are and SOS, <laughs> that will save your life. So even a really small amount of data can be super, super valuable. So does that answer the question? Yeah, or? no, that answers okay. the question. And then with your constellation with Swarm's satellites, I realized that, you know, you could get 100% coverage all over the world, but is the capacity limited? I mean, can you mm -hmm. oversaturate the number of devices that are connected to it? Absolutely. So we're very capacity constrained and we've known this since the beginning. And actually my PhD has capacity constrained networks in it. So this is something I've been very aware of my whole life. It's like you only have so many bits you can move around. And that's true of any network, but it's particularly true of satellite networks just because of the limited available spectrum. And then we're very low power, very low gain antennas and all of that. So yes, we can and likely will sell out the capacity of Swarm, which I think is a phenomenal problem because it means that on the regulatory and business fronts, we've been extremely successful in finding enough customers to put them on the network. That being said, we're working on many projects that kind of the R&D phase, so secretive, I can't divulge very much on this call, but kind of what does the next generation network look like or can we have more satellites or different spectrum that we can utilize to increase the capacity of our of our networks that we have and how can they work together and be collaborative? Uh, what makes most sense for future networks versus current networks? So yes, that's absolutely top of mind. But again, that's like a very good problem to have. So <laughs> I will be thrilled when we're sold out. But yes, it's certainly not an endless supply of capacity that we're looking at here. And how are the satellites themselves powered? So they're all solar powered, which is very common. We use very high efficiency, something like 33% efficient space grade solar panels. And then we have an onboard battery, a very simple design that stores energy because we're transmitting at such low power. And for such a short duration, we actually have way more battery than we need, 
which is kind of crazy. And then we're in sun for about 70% of every orbit. So we're constantly recharging that battery. Interesting. And, and then when a customer then is buying your service, are they buying based on the amount of your capacity they're taking up? Is that how that works? Yeah. So it's back to kind of the, you know, they buy the hardware and then they sign up for the monthly subscription. Right now we have one tier. We may offer multiple tiers in the future where if you use a certain amount every month, you're just charged a certain amount. So it's a super simple model. Some historical satellite companies have charged like per bit or per packet or, you know, per utilization. And we decided to actually just do something a lot simpler than that because most of our customers are sending relatively little amounts of data. And then that becomes a very kind of repeatable business model for us as well. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, I mean, the sweet spot here, correct me if I'm wrong, is like, I don't need much, you know, I don't need to send a whole lot of information, but I need to consistently send information from really remote areas. Yeah. And it's, it can actually be as frequent as, you know, every hour or every day. So it's not super infrequent, but it's certainly not like we expect on our cell phones when we're constantly texting or downloading maps or emails, that sort of connectivity, but it's still a decent amount. I'm honestly pretty impressed at what we can offer with such small satellites. I imagine, you know, I know you already have pilot programs going, you've got satellites in space, you're getting ready to launch more. If somebody's listening and they do have an ag tech company or work at an ag tech company that says that's exactly what we're needing, that solves our problem, can they get on the list now? Yes, they should absolutely get on the list now. And we actually have this program that we call the Early Access Program, where early customers can talk to our team, figure out if you know it meets their needs, and then we have some perks for early access to our network. So I definitely recommend they get in touch soon. And we'll be launching our commercial satellites in about a month, like I mentioned. And then we'll be starting commercial operations. So we'll be sending out devices. People will be starting to do testing on the network. And we have a limited number of devices for that early program. So definitely recommend they reach out. They can contact inquiries at swarm.space or they can just go to our website and fill out the form there. Physically, the next step for you, because you have approvals, like the logistics of putting these in orbit themselves, I guess, since you already have the satellite, you already have approval. What does that look like? Do you go up on like a SpaceX shuttle and then they just kind of like release these mm-hmm. things? Or, I mean, what does that physically look like? Yeah, th- what you described is, is very accurate. So we work with a bunch of different rockets and providers. So there's a lot of kind of third party integrators It's hard for a company like Swarm to directly buy capacity from SpaceX because we're like five kilograms worth. They want to sell considerably more than that. So work with these third-party integrators. We go in something that's called a P-Pod or a version of a P-Pod that is essentially that shoebox that I mentioned, but it's just the outside rails and it has a spring in it. It's kind of like a jack-in-the-box that we stack 12 of our satellites into a 3U form factor, which is about 10 by 10 by 34 centimeters. And that literally just gets bolted on the side of the rocket. We ride up on any rocket. We've worked with SpaceX. We've worked with Rocket Lab. We've worked with PSLV, which is the Indians. We're launching on a Vega, which is the French, in about a month. We're also working with a lot of the up-and-coming providers like Astra, and hopefully in the future, Relativity and Virgin. We work with everyone. We like diversity. I always say don't put all your satellites 
on one rocket. <laughs> yeah. One rocket. <laughs> we, we also need diversity. So uh, we want to go into different orbits and those different providers provide different kind of slots in space, if you will. Yeah. So we ride up, bolted on the side, and then we get to the right orbital position. The little box opens. We get deployed out. It's pretty low tech, honestly. We have little springs on the feet of all of our satellites, which allows all 12 to kind of space out relative to one another. Oh, yeah. wow. So they all have a different design spring on them to kind of put them in they a position? They actually all have the same spring, and they just kind of like all push off once one another. It's kind of like Lego blocks with springs in zero G, like if you could <laughs> imagine. And they all just spread out relative to one another, and that's enough delta V, or it's just kind of a little bit of an acceleration between each of the satellites. And then they very quickly drift relative to one another, and space is huge, of course. We have some tricks for slightly different weights, which allows them to experience a little bit different drag, which allows them to spread out. And we have some other tricks coming up with magnetorkers and thrusters and stuff like that as well. But yeah, it's it's pretty low tech. I think maybe the most interesting thing about Swarm is that we're launching 12 at a time. And traditionally, it was just one satellite in this shoebox-sized thing. So I think that's a little bit... Um, kind of exciting. And there were people that wanted to see a lot of simulations of how that would go. But we're not that nervous about it. We did three at once or no four at once on our first launch. So that went very well. They all turned on successfully and did their thing. So, you know, if they touch each other a little bit, it's okay. <laughs> They'll eventually drift apart and they're built for that. What does 12 satellites get you that one doesn't? So 12 satellites, when they're all clustered together, they're kind of on top of one another, and the footprint that they can see on the ground is kind of the same cone, if you will, uh, kind of like an upside-down ice cream cone. Once they've spread out relative to one another, we call it they're spread kind of like a string of pearls, you know, evenly distributed 12 around the orbit. And then what happens is those cones are also all spread out. So what happens is we have this constant track of the orbital plane beneath the orbital plane that can communicate with their satellites. So it provides us with much better coverage. For example, with one satellite, I would have about four times a day where a satellite is overhead for about 10 minutes and I can choose to communicate. So that's, you know, that's pretty limited. Once the 12 satellites have spread out within this orbital plane, there would be about three or four hours twice a day where I'd have continuous coverage. So it dramatically improves my coverage opportunities. And then what we do is we launch into different orbital planes. I call it kind of like a wedge of orange. So every like about 30 degrees, there's another wedge of orange and their footprints overlap. So once we've deployed all 150 in these wedges of oranges and spread out in a string of pearls, then we have this nice global continuous constellation where every point on Earth is covered at all times. And then you don't have to wait at all. You can communicate whenever you want. Then once they're up there, how long can you use them and, and what happens? Yeah, totally. So the orbital lifetime is about four years and that's until they go from their initial altitude to an altitude where they start to re-enter and they actually totally burn up in the atmosphere. So it's a self-cleaning orbit, which is the best kind. Nothing comes back down. It's not scary or, you know, nothing will ever land on anyone's head or anything like that. So yeah, it's about four years. We can choose to turn off the satellites earlier if we want to. And we have some tricks for bringing them down faster to minimize orbital debris if we want to. But yeah, that's kind of the target for years. And we're continuously replenishing the constellation. So um, I mentioned we're vertically integrated. We're very agile. So we're always iterating on the satellite designs. Every three or six months, we're launching a new version of the satellite. And we can continuously be iterating and 
you know, in two years, we're probably going to be launching satellites that are 10 times better than the ones we have today or something like that. So we want that flexibility of constantly being able to relaunch. And they're at a price point where that's reasonable, whereas like you wouldn't relaunch the Iridium network that frequently. And I imagine your carriers, you're getting more and more options for rockets. You probably couldn't even have done this company a decade ago, could no, you? No, definitely not. And I even think when we started was almost exactly the right time because access to space is more accessible than it's ever been in terms of the diversity and launch options. The prices are starting to come down. I would have expected it to be a little bit faster, but finally we're seeing some nice cost reductions from certain providers, especially when you work kind of internationally or, you know, just be creative in in how you're coming about those options. Something else that's really exciting, at least to me, is there's this emergence of these what we would call space tugs. So the satellites go up on one rocket and then they're in this separate tug vehicle that separates from the rocket and then can take the satellites into another specific orbit. So up or down or sideways into a slightly different orbital plane. And that's really exciting for us because it means that we can get drops specifically into the orbits that we need. And then there's also just a whole plethora of new rocket companies. Like I mentioned, Astra and Virgin and Relativity and several others that are coming up. And some of them are focusing more on the small satellite space, like launching 50 or 100 or 150 kilograms at a time. And that's really exciting because there's an opportunity for companies like Swarm to even set the orbit that we want to end up in. And to me, that's like mind boggling that the rocket would be determined where it's going based on these tiny little satellites. But that's kind of the space and the direction that we're headed. So already we've had great conversations and influence on some of the rockets that we'll be launching on through the rest of this year and early next year. I never anticipated that when we started Swarm, to be honest. So it's cool to see that really rapid evolution of the space industry. I'm excited to see all all the various use cases, especially in ag, obviously. And I I think there's also going to be like a, there's a social element to this too, almost like a social justice element where you're providing access to technology to people who, even if there was an NGO that wanted to invest in ag technology in rural remote places in India or Africa, let's say, now they might be able to. Absolutely. And, you know, working with companies like SweetSense, we see the impact of water monitoring and air quality monitoring. But there's a lot of other things that we could do with respect to even connecting people for simple text messaging. There's a lot of healthcare applications. So, yeah, we're very excited. And there's also, you know, tracking extinct animals, beehive situations, tracking whales. We get to learn about so many cool use cases around the world and where we can have impact. So, yeah, I I love learning about new things and, you know, we're happy to support as long as our offering makes sense for whatever people are trying to accomplish. Well, thank you so very much to Dr. Sarah Spangolo for being on the show. These are some of my favorite types of solutions because the possibilities that they can enable stretch far beyond my imagination. And it truly is a breakthrough that can help a lot of ag tech companies and in turn, farmers and ranchers. Go check them out online at swarm.space. One of those companies that can benefit from better connectivity is Bloomfield Robotics. They've built a camera that mounts on an ATV or piece of farm equipment and an artificial intelligence-based platform that processes images for more informed decision-making. 
Here's CEO Mark DeSantis at one of our FOA community pitch events. We take pictures of plants, individual plants. I make that point by saying not crops, but individual plants, wherever they are. And then we use AI to determine the health and performance of that plant. But with all these fancy cameras and artificial intelligence, the natural immediate question on many people's minds is, but why though? Since uh, the Mesopotamians grew crops 10,000 years ago, visual inspection by humans is the dominant method of detecting things. Whether it's walking through a vineyard, looking at tomatoes or whatever it might be, you're spending, sending somebody out ideally who's qualified to walk among the crops, whether they be row crops or specialty crops, and render judgments about those things. That's costly and highly variable. Um, when you use humans to inspect anything, we are human and we come with biases and um, predispositions. We also at times are tired and fatigued. Now, this line of thinking is not new. I mean, we have been learning to take images and process them for decades in agriculture. But most of that has been done through drone, fixed wing or satellite imagery. Mark says what differentiates Bloomfield is the angle in which they're able to capture the images. The problem with that using aerial observation from above, you can't see the fruit. There are plants where you need to get perpendicular to the plant. And so for us, it's about taking an image of a plant, getting perpendicular to it, and then using that as the basis for our analysis. Their name is Bloomfield Robotics, but the robotics part is a bit of a misnomer, at least for now. They're not really building a robot to take these images, which I actually think is smart because for now it creates less of a barrier up front for people to start using their technology. The camera that we use on the back is effectively a stereo camera and it has its own light source and it's geolocated. I mentioned geolocated because the motto of our company is every plant matters. And so you want to geolocate what you're looking at. Now that imaging my plants, taking pictures of them and analyzing them is very cheap, I can do it a lot. And if I want to do it a lot, then I can do it temporally. So I know that that's vine five, row six. But in the end, does a farmer really want this? Or is this just something cool we can talk about on a podcast? If all we're doing is satisfying somebody's mild curiosity, we don't have a business. That's what the problem with a lot of AI companies is they're, they're satisfying curiosities. They're not driving decisions. And I learned that in my previous AI companies the hard way. And so what we're trying to do is we work backward from the growers' decisions and many decisions we didn't know about, things, choices they had to make during the course of a year. And so we always start with a choice and then work backward into what can our visual observation improve or drive about that choice. It's interesting. I, I'll make an observation. When people realize that they can image their entire vineyard, every single vine, continuously, it opens up their thinking to a whole different way of thinking about the vineyard and how they manage it. It's sort of a mind shift. If I can literally know the condition of every plant all the time, it changes their thinking. It brings about true precision agriculture. One aspect of AI that is truly exciting is that it learns and gets better over time. So the larger the image database gets, theoretically, the more effective the algorithm becomes. And ultimately, we hope the more insights can be gleaned for farmers. As we start collecting more and more data already, you are collecting digital phenotypes of everything you see. 
And you're seeing more and more of those. So with every instance of a Syrah grape, we get a little bit smarter about a Syrah grape, a Syrah grape at inflorescence, a Syrah grape at harvest and so on. And those become what I call digital phenotypes. And that digital phenotype for that particular plot of ground or that vine or that grape produces a result that we've now recorded. And we're doing it on a massive scale. So we're creating as a residual outcome of what we're doing, a massive digital database of plant phenotypes. So now you've opened up perhaps another market of breeders, of growers who want to meta-analysis their crops, differential treatment down to the plant level, unlike any before. And so what's happened is the beautiful thing about AI is that it's made it so that it's now really, really inexpensive. And my first AI company was 15 years ago using image processing. Three years ago, I could not have made this claim, but literally now, if you can see it, a machine can see it and see it with more precision and accuracy than a human looking at the same plan. Well, thank you so much to Mark DeSantis at Bloomfield for participating in our FOA community pitch event. Uh, if you're listening and you'd like to join us for virtual events like that one, I'd invite you to join our community over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. But that's it for episode 228. I'm really excited about a more connected future for agriculture. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 